of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode two hundred and ten point five point five episode. Uh, we're gonna finish up Ovid here. Jason Lingren is always master of ceremonies with me. Wayne McCroy, master of everything else, with me. We're gonna finish up Ovid. We're gonna pick up in and around book nine. This critical point in what we're trying to lay down here, because it corresponds with now. Uh, to make it perfectly clear within the scope of these, I guess, very important mythical books, we could call them, poetry in this case, um, we could say that history repeats itself, which is actually pointed out in many places, but again, in what we are covering here. Could it be that someone out there actually understands how the cycles go and these texts were put together to reshape the coming cycle? Are we currently truly sitting in around the influence or the allegory of book nine of metamorphosis we will see anyhow welcome jason and good morning oh it's a lot to get through it's a lot to understand i'm reasonably sure we don't have much of anything in times like these i guess i would mention we were also looking at comet atlas of which i have serious doubts remember ison uh, didn't exist in my view Atlas was Titan, I think. I'd have to look that up to know um, who was then told he had to hold the world up on his shoulders. That's another episode, another idea, another bunch of research to be done. But the Civil War kicked off. Remember how many was 189 years? Jason, do you remember how many years ago? I don't. Oh, that would be 1861, I think. Yeah, right on April 12th there, which would be Easter for us, the American Civil War. There it is. Anyhow, welcome Wayne McCroy. Good to be back, guys. Yeah, that's uh, 159 years ago, if my math is correct, then. So, uh, you know, is there significance to the number 159? Who knows? History repeats itself, apparently. Uh, and these myths were telling us things that we just couldn't quite understand up until it's getting a bit late in the day to understand. But you know where we're picking up. Uh, we're going to do a back and forth for the additional notes, but we can do a cut if we need to. It's all you. We are currently watching books 7, 8, and 9 play out in front of our eyes. There are some other interesting correlations to the Bible that we need to explore to flesh out our understanding of exactly what this is we are looking at. So many archetypal themes overlap from the myths covered by Ovid with the Bible, along with other texts. There are notable clues that point us in the right direction. So where do we look next to understand the playbook of the elite? I'm going to let Wayne get into that part of it, and I'm just going to take a moment to go at the idea of history repeats itself, taken as a literal idea, which is put forward in some of these very, well, apparently old writings, whoever the heck wrote them. Let's consider the sky clock. Um, everybody's aware that there is this cycle and that cycle where the sky goes right back to where it was. I think if we consider the sky clock, because I was trying to figure out a, a no-nonsense way to take on the idea that literally history repeats itself. If we take the sky clock, I think you could argue, argue all day long that it does. There are cycles that complete, which means you come back to the metaphorical idea of zero and you start up again where you've just been. Uh, what period of time that is, what the markers are. This is the whole thing about ages. This nonsense we've played with, oh, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Well, no, it's not. Why is somebody saying that? And to be perfectly clear, 
what age you are in um, seems to be one of the closely guarded secrets that I've come across and how you determine when the age changes. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, clearly it's this clear. Well, I'm sorry, man. I've looked very carefully. And until you can get coherence across cultures and other things, you're not there. All these people saying different things. And just to be perfectly clear, a hippie song from the 60s ain't getting it. We took that apart and we showed even the language of what they're saying about the planets is almost polar opposite of what actually people interpret them to mean now. Anyhow, Wayne, uh, you want to pull us back on the actual intent of this paragraph? Yeah, sure. But before we do that, I'll just point out something uh, that is actually in that song kind of encoded. And I would suspect there's some meaning there. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. So if anybody wants to look in the book of Jeremiah in the Bible and see what that's about and then try to equate it to the natural world with, uh, you know, something relating to a bullfrog, you know, there might be something there. We're crossing songs, though. To be clear, I was speaking of the fifth dimension. You're now talking about Three Dog Night, just so people know. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was misunderstanding which song you were referencing. But still, even though two different songs about the same basic idea, uh, they do often use these forms of art to encode different messages in there. And, you know, I think we've discussed that like many, many times before. So uh, back to the point, though, it looks like uh, the cycle of time we're in right now. We're really watching book nine of uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis playing out before our eyes and uh, quickly advancing into book 10. And I think that's that's part of uh, why the moniker that was given this thing that's going on majorly in the world right now was given to it. It's to point out to people in the know, hey, guys, here's where to look to see what's going on with this cycle of time and what the plan is. So uh, if if we could look at that. And see, with a new set of eyes, what Ovid has to say, we could really begin to know what's going on in the world around us for real. All right. To be clear, we covered uh, in the last episode, Ovid, hint, 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 one through nine, hint, hint, hint. And now we're going to pick up at 10. It's all you, Jason. The next logical place to look is Metamorphoses Book 10. Book 10 highlights several notable myths. One important one is the story of Pygmalion. Pygmalion is so disgusted with humanity that he carves an ivory statue of a woman and fell in love with her. He asked Venus to make his statue into flesh, and Venus granted his request and blessed the union between the two. The basic Pygmalion story is an archetype that has transcended time and cultures. Variations of the theme can be seen in everything from Shakespeare, George Bernard Shaw, to Pinocchio, and the story told in reverse in a more recent movie called Lars and the Real Girl. It is essentially the archetypal story of the Gollum of alchemical thought and has many ties to transhumanism and the replacing of the natural with the artificial. Man, in his hubris, believes he can create something greater than God. I'm going to kick this just straight over to Wayne, but I will mention there's an old classic golden, well, maybe a little past the golden age movie called Pygmalion. I'm doing this from memory. I hope I'm not messing this up. If I am, give me a pass. But I think it's a story of a Cockney girl who speaks Cockney and the lords or the betters or the hires make a bet that they can teach her how to act like high society and she'd fit right in. Um, Again, you can see the transformation and it also is making fun of someone uh, who they call a gutter rat, I think at one point, being that kind of not very important thing or something like that. Anyhow, Wayne. 
I think you nailed it. I'm pretty sure that's what the whole plot of that movie was. And it does uh, relate back to this this story of Pygmalion. I mean, this is an archetype that's been used in multiple forms of entertainment now. And the whole idea behind it is transformation. And it's it's a transformation from something lesser or something, you know, material to something higher, to a higher form. And and that's what this is really equating. And uh, this is being heavily tied in with transhumanist ideas right now, in my view. So th- that's why I think it's important to touch upon the, the story of Pygmalion, because you can see where it's an artificial thing with no actual spirit or life in it, and it's being imbued with spirit or life. So if you look at uh, something like, say, Pinocchio, which is a take on this, it's a wooden doll or a wooden puppet. And uh, because of uh, Geppetto's prayers and stuff like that, it's imbued with a life essence or a spirit, and uh, it becomes eventually through the, the story a, a real boy. So it's kind of an important alchemical idea, and you can see different earlier ideas tied up in this whole concept. Right, and you can always tell by the names, and, and Pinocchio, I, I may be wrong here too, I'm just pulling so much from memory. I think the cat's name is Cleo, of all things. But to get back to the point, there's one more kind of parallel of this idea that comes from the movie Pygmalion, uh, where the Cockney girl is considered worthless, basically, until she's taught how to speak and act a certain way. And then, magically, she's worth something. Um, this idea is in Freemasonry, when you start getting up to the Royal Arch, the idea that the people who escaped the fall or were taken prisoner at the fall of the temple um, are asked to prove that they are from the line of the people taken into bondage and not those menial, worthless people who were left behind to deal with the fields. These ideas go on and on and on. And the thing that gets me about it is fake. In Pygmalion, a person is a person. If they speak one way and not the other, does that truly devalue the life of a human being? You can't have it both ways. Either a human being has the divine spark and there was part of this creation, or something else is going on. And I think you can't have it both ways until you start to try to assert that man can become the god of this place, uh, which seems to me an aberration. Anyhow, Jason? Metamorphoses Book 10 also tells the tale of Atalanta and her suitor, Hippomenes. Hippomenes wins her over by defeating her in a race by tricking her with three golden apples. He and Atalanta consecrate their marriage in an ancient shrine and defile a holy place. For their indiscretion, the gods of the shrine turn them into savage lions. The idea of defiling the holy place is a concept we need to keep in mind. So, we know the modern-day correlation of Atalanta, but what does Hippomenes mean? Hippo translates as river, and Menes derives from Manetho, an Egyptian priest of the pre-Coptic era. So, Hippomenes could be construed to mean river of the priest, denoting the underground stream of the lineage of the priesthood of the mysteries. This may seem like a stretch for some, but words have meaning, and this would denote a sort of spiritual connection tying Atlanta to ancient Egypt. I think that there is a slew of confirmatory circumstantial evidence that makes the case. So one thing, have you ever been reading a thing like you'll be reading the Bible and you'll come across Philadelphia and you'll say, well, that's an interesting coinkadink. Well, it's not. It's just not. We used to think these things. These names are being reused and the people who reuse them did it for a reason. 
people like James Shelby Downard showed us for the first time that the onology or the, the meaning in names and the toponymy is what he called it, the meaning of places and their names and their location, these things all matter. So if you have a major city named Atlanta and it shows up in these myths, there's a thing to look at there. What would you say, Wayne? I would say there's also further connotation implied in this story, too. If you look at the Atlanta, Georgia, and look at the word Atlanta and what's her, her suitor? Her suitor's name is Hipponim, Hippomenes. I can't even say it right. But Hippomenes sounds like, is like Hippocrates. Here's your uh, medicine connection, okay? And the CDC is in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, there's your connection to the medical establishment. I mean, so this is an alchemical marriage between this specific place, which represents ancient Egypt, and uh, the medical establishment. So when we go down the notes a little further here later, we'll see more connections and more lines being drawn. But you'll notice that these two things become savage lions they're transferred into savage lions and that should tell people something about our medical system metamorphoses book 11 book 11 contains several important stories the death of orpheus the curse of midas the foundation and destruction of troy the story of peleus and thetis all of these stories have an esoteric significance encoded within and it is not a coincidence that they wound up being in book 11 no, it is not. They seem like bold statements, but when you start to be able to see and you get back to what's actually going on and you look at first, you're of a mind that, oh, wow, this is strange that it happened, turned out this way. It didn't. And I'll come back to history repeats itself. It's got to be something like that. I don't accept that somehow there was so much an ingenious squad of people that, that pulled all this off. I, I am almost whole hog into the idea um, of cycles of time being hidden so that people can't understand them. And that has to do with the jacking of the sky clock. So you can't read it. So you don't realize someone has the, the good records of what was learned from the sky clock and the cycles and all this. Um, these things matter. And I, you know, I try mightily to, to show people why they matter when astrology has been so made fun of and astronomy. So many people tired of the NASA's of the world making stuff up. It's all defaming this thing that really can't be defamed. When we get into book 11, now these things are starting to matter. By the time we get to book 13, we're going to show you. Um, Wayne had come to a similar conclusion that I did in this general vicinity of metamorphosis, um, that the fall of Troy is in lockstep with where our current cycle is, which, by the way, just so you remember, we covered this before, the fall of Troy sets in motion the founding of Rome. So go ahead, Wayne. As to where we're at right now, looking at Book 11, the story of Midas in Book 11 points out in no uncertain terms to anybody with eyes to see that uh, we need to be mindful of alchemy. That's what this is about, transforming uh, things into gold. And that's that the Midas touch. Uh, you, you've heard this term before, and this is the, the, uh, the myth where that whole story comes from is the myth of Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold. Gold. This was the goal of the alchemical sciences and is the pursuit of the philosopher's stone or great work that these uh, mystery religions and mystery schools have always sought. So this in book 11 here in our modern era is pointing out the importance of alchemy in all of this. This should not be lost on people. There's something true to the nature of this and uh, 
this this is what this is pointing out. It's almost correlatable to what would be called the great work, and you can almost think about it like this. The surface narrative, the story being told on the face of it, is for the profane to understand, oh, it turned into gold, gold has value. Um, that's not it. These are allegories and similes and all the isms and ease we could think of to be referring to this other thing that is very kind of basically related to the mind of a, of a living man or woman. The idea that they, it can be perfected, that it can go to the highest level. Almost the idea that we referenced in the last episode where Zeus is sitting there saying, you know, all these humans invented us and if they ever quit believing in us, we'll be gone overnight implying that not only did the human beings make the so-called gods with a small g, but they could also have them go away by simply failing to recognize them anymore. Um, all these things are tied up together in weird ways. Would, would you add anything there, Wayne? No, I think that's a, a pretty good analogy of, of what's going on there. Because when you look at this, uh, when you think of these ancient gods, so to say, you're better off when you look at them as aspects of nature. And and that's that's the best way to look at these things. So it's kind of hard for people to to get past that whole gods kind of thing with the, right. the small g and, and look at it just as uh, an aspect of nature or a type of an idea, uh, a concept. So look at it as something like this. So if you ignore this concept – this concept disappears from human thought altogether. Uh, this is kind of similar to what you're saying as to, uh, you know, the, the opinion of the gods of like uh, humans made us. And if they stop believing in us, we disappear, that kind of thing. And that I think is by and large, one of the things going on today, they're trying to uh, make these aspects of nature disappear from human thought or human acknowledgement and bring about new rules of this creation and they're trying to uh, bring about an artificial system with this and then these are just more ideas based on the same thing and it's a cyclical thing in nature because they always rename the gods with every new mythos that comes along like the romans had different names for these same aspects of nature than the greeks did and, and that kind of thing so <clears throat> this is kind of what i think it's about it's bringing up these older ideas into more modern terms and renaming them something else. So even though the concept stays alive, it's a different name. And then the old name falls off and the way humans think about it is different. And that's an important concept for people to try and wrap their brains around too. There's another side of this too. Um, one of the myth runs we made, some mythical scholars came in and told me I was full of prunes and you don't know anything and how can you possibly say the gods are aspects of nature? And I was like, oh my word, um, how can you possibly say that it's somehow alchemical? The very opening of Ovid takes the four alchemical elements, thinking of the world in that way, and it does the creation of the world. Uh, in many ways, the Bible is using the exact same ideas in a slightly different delivery. Um, but how can you not say that? If you say that, not only are you missing the bulk of the meaning in this, these stories become meaningless. They're just fairy tales if you go down that road. Oh, so this dude that lived a million years ago did something. Who cares? That's what it becomes. It becomes a, a bedtime story for children. Now, when you understand they start talking about a certain flower sprung up, they're telling you where it is in the calendar. Did everyone forget that nature, in fact, is cyclical? And when a certain flower blooms, that's you can tie that to a certain time of the year. 
these kinds of ideas, all the intricacy and the subtlety get lost if you don't go to the broader, provably existent ideas that we're trying to show here. Metamorphoses, Book 12. Book 12 is all about warfare and battle. The expedition against Troy, Achilles in Cisness, the death of Achilles and his magical armor, the story of Canis. Canis becomes Canius. Okay, so we've reached the part of the story where a lot of people will recognize names like Achilles and Ajax and Ulysses, who is actually Odysseus. This is the importance of understanding the Greek root and then the Romanization later. There's a reason for all these things. Why did the Romans Romanize everything? Well, I think it's about cycles of time. I think the Romans grabbed the Greek cycles of time held in these tales and they Romanized them for the Roman cycle of time. And as they did it, they said, by the way, did you know Zeus sent old Aeneas to go found Rome and said that this place would take over the whole world and own it for the rest of time? Hint, hint, hint. But Canis, you know, the, these ideas, we have constellations, the, the dog Canis. But to get back to the point, at this point of the story, Hollywood has got a hold of things. Um, you've seen the movie Troy and they shuffle things around. And we'll get to that in a moment. And I'm going to let Wayne come back to this book 12 to, to pull us back into the ideas of book 12. But I will say, just so you understand, this is the problem with film and the television as a learning tool. Besides the fact that Nova is getting ready to release a show that apparently tells you it's good to be fat, they are putting movies on that black box like Troy with Brad Pitt. These stories don't per se follow the lines for some reason. We're about to cover the death of Ajax, but the movie will tell you a whole other story about that. But Wayne, please pull us to 12 so that we could do our due diligence on this book. All right. There's a lot of different things uh, encoded here in, in book 12. And one of the major ones we could look at is the expedition against Troy. So this is uh, kind of uh, what we're leading into today. There's there's an expedition at place uh, going against Troy in the modern age. And, and that's kind of where we're living right now. Uh, that's how it appears to me is uh, there seems to be this, this campaign to uh, – pretty much destroy our economy and thus our Western lifestyle. And that's what I think is going on heavily in book 12. Uh, this stuff's encoded and there's a lot of different uh, other little things encoded within there too, which relate to the fall of uh, our Western society and, and how certain things have been leveraged against us. And we can see this in the story of uh, Canis. Canis was a beautiful girl who would marry no one. Neptune raped her and then offered to grant her one wish. So her wish pretty much was that uh, Neptune turn her into a man so she couldn't be violated like that anymore. So once again, you could see this whole gender bend thing uh, being leveraged upon here uh, to certain effect. This is something I think is, is critical to the modern era because Canis was completely changed and her name was changed to Canaeus and, uh, in addition to Neptune turning her into a man, uh, he also made her invulnerable to spears and arrows. So you could kind of see, made this uh, this transformation impervious to attack. So it, he kind of held this thing up in high regard. And you could see that in our society today. This has uh, been talked about within the Tavistock playbook and stuff too. And it has to do primarily with... Uh, keeping our population numbers dwindling 
and also with the breaking down of the, our traditional family unit. So you can see how this is being played as one aspect of this, uh, this whole expedition against Troy concept. And, it, you know, there's various other things within this book that equate different, different forms that our society is being broken down with. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things to keep in mind. I'd, we could go way deeper with a lot of this stuff because there's just so much encoded in these books. But it, it's hard to really convey in words to people the archetypes and ideas that are being used right now to bring about a certain effect within the world right now and how it all plays into this whole cycles of time bit that they're utilizing. So where we currently find ourselves, uh, the average man or woman uh, is familiar with these things mostly through what Hollywood has done or other kind of entertainment-based things. Not too long ago, uh, anyone who was considered educated had the classic education. They knew the basics. They knew the Ennead. They knew Ovid. They knew uh, the uh, Odyssey and Iliad, uh, which is supposedly Homer, which is nonsense. I think you can show it was written by more than one person. But even in this, you will find these departures that we get confused about now that I don't think they were then, like Achilles. How many people have heard the term, oh, it was his Achilles heel? Well, that saying, that idea, is that his mother dipped him in a magic river and held him by the heels so all the place that went in the water couldn't be hurt by arrows and spears. But that heel, well, that's made up. As far as I can tell, the original story is the one we're going to use where basically what happened is he got handed magical armor, which made him more impervious than he always already was as the best fighter. But I'm pointing these things out because not only have we gotten away from why these things mattered and under it, even being even the scholars coming forward and saying this has nothing to do with nature it's like dear lord how do we get here but even certain aspects are just there's these random things added in um and i'm not able to understand why i guess is the main point but what we've done is gone with the the older versions that we think are more correct metamorphoses book 13 ajax and ulysses both claim the armor of achilles the fall of Troy, and the pilgrimage of Aeneas with the foundation of Rome. All right, here we are. Book 13, for people who do the simple numbers game, you understand that's four, which often stands in for death in many of its usages. And this is going to be about death. Earlier on, uh, the, the chief prince of Troy, uh, under Priam, the king, his eldest son is killed. And it's a big deal in the tales, a massive deal, like earth-shattering to their time as it's portrayed. That is recounted over and over again here in book 13, but Ajax dies. And we're talking, there were two Ajax, and I'm not going to get into this. There was a lesser and a greater. We're, we're talking about the important Ajax here. And in the reading that we are, we can see we're being pulled away from the old Homeric Greek style of things. We're not going to call Odysseus Odysseus. We're going to call him Ulysses. Been Romanized now. Okay, you following? So Odysseus or Ulysses gets in a fight with Ajax over Achilles' armor. Because in book 13, we're also dealing with the death of Achilles. Boy, that four is covering a lot of death here. Um, these things are not coincidence. From my point of view so achilles dead his magical armor and by the way in the book it's always about the armor the guys fighting that you know their names they're princes and lords and every time they kill someone their big trophy is to get that armor so right now odysseus and ajax or ulysses and ajax are going to fight over the armor everyone votes 
the goddess, the mother of Achilles, gets in on it, and basically Odysseus or Ulysses gets the armor handed to him. And a lot of people think it's unfair because Ajax is a monster of a battle man. Uh, Odysseus is no slump in battle, but the point is Ajax cannot take the shame, so he kills himself. Now, what I'm about to tell you is told in at least three places I'm aware of, but I think this is maybe the version that, that matters most directly to us. The blood from Ajax's suicide hits the ground and a hyacinth plant springs from that place. On the leaf of the hyacinth plant is A-I, or in the older ways of writing, the letters that would represent the beginning of Ajax. But we know what A-I means in our day, and uh, that word back then meant woe. And by the way, there are a few renderings, but I went to the older sources. As far as I can tell, it meant woe extreme sadness kind of idea going on there. Just to be clear, so people don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, there's also the tale of how the hyacinth sprung from the ground or other green things sprung from blood with a dude named Hyacinthus who's apparently hit by a discus. There's even another tale that has to do with, I believe, a slave boy. The idea is so important that it's made its ideas into these other tellings um, to the point where even you could ask, why do we call a hyacinth the hyacinth? Well, I think you're looking at the reason. But also, for all those scholars out there that want to tell me there's no relation to nature or alchemy, a hyacinth grows at a certain time of year. And while we don't know specifically what kind it is, and you'll even get into Merriam-Webster, could be a lily, could be an iris of all things. In certain tellings, they'll tell you the color of it. It's going to be purple. A lot of it's got mixed up. But I think these are all critically important things. I mean, almost seems like we're looking at the first mention of the idea of AI here based on the blood of the death of Ajax. So I know I kind of wandered around there, Wayne, um, still still waking up here this morning, I guess. No, that's OK, because that is a brilliant observation on the tail of that. Uh, so what we're looking at is Ulysses or the the Roman version of Odysseus when the armor of Achilles. So he's given the power during this time. And Ajax, distraught with him uh, being given the power, commits suicide, and the hyacinth comes forth and springs forth the idea of AI. Hmm, that's that's a very interesting tie-in right now, because we're looking at who's who's really in power right now. Who's the ones that are, are running this show? Well, it's the modern-day version of the Roman Empire. So Rome, still as of right now, has the armor of Achilles, but this AI is rising. And uh, with the rise of the AI and being incorporated with the Roman system, there's the potential for that to take over. So we're looking at a big idea when we look at the ideas of Ajax. And I think uh, we need to further explore the personality and the, the traits and stuff associated with Ajax to better understand where we're going. And that that's probably uh, something to look at for you know a, a future show because I'm sure there's a lot to that. But uh, that's an interesting take on things. Even even the hyacinth, the symbolic uh, representation of the hyacinth, you know that all very well correlates to a lot of this different stuff. And uh, I'll be looking at that now uh, with a new set of eyes. Uh, the concept of tying the eye, the hyacinth to AI. So. Uh, that makes for some interesting thoughts right off the top of my head. So I'm going to have to explore that avenue more. So there's another thing that we can tie into book 13, the big old deadly four. So much death going on. Troy is dying. Hector is dead. 
the prince of Troy is dead. The heir to the throne is dead. That's why they make it such a big deal. All of Greece is in mourning because all these deaths are occurring. Uh, and then Ajax dies, and so this book 13. But as Achilles was getting pulled into this whole go to the Battle of Troy, he was told by his mother, who's goddess, or at least part goddess, depending where you read. Um, there's two outcomes here, Achilles. Um, you can stay here, and no one will ever remember your name in a thousand years. And But you'll have children, you'll live a long life, be great. Or you can go to the Battle of Troy. Your name will be remembered forever, but you're going to die there. This is, again, the idea. See, people hear these things now, and they're all, okay, so we had a sorcerer with a crystal ball. It's not what's going on. Go back to the idea of history repeats itself. You see, if you understood the cycles, um, you might be able to start to imply that she's not looking into the future. She's aware of how the next cycle is going to play because she knows how the last one did. But it also implies another thing, that the decisions we make can alter the course of a cycle. You can go with this or you can go with that. Polarity, like a battery. There's negative side, there's positive side. The idea at the basis of alchemy is the negative side is not bad. The night is not bad. Most people prefer the positive side right now, and they prefer the light of day. Some don't, but there's no crime to be associated with either at the basis of the natural idea where nature doesn't show pity because it's not a, a case of being cruel or not being cruel. This thing is happening. This is where we are. So even wrapped up in the tale of Achilles, um, you can see the idea that maybe what they're trying to show us is that, in fact, this idea that gods can see into the future is not what's going on, that there's been cycles that they know and they understand the possibilities that are about to unfold. So there's all that. Right. And then there's another important point you just made there, the fact that uh, we can change the direction the cycle's going. The things that right. we do will affect the next cycle. And that's important because right. that's where we're at right now. We're at a crossroads right now in uh, our our history. And the things we do right now are going to uh, affect what comes about within the next cycle here that we're entering into. I would suggest we are at the biggest crossroads we're aware of in the history of the world. And that's saying quite a bit considering the idea of world wars, the theater of war that has changed so much about our world. Uh, it's going to matter whether we turn left, right, go straight, come back the way we went, or we sit right there at the crossroads to the day we die. Basically five options at the crossroads. I hope we do well in our decision. And the problem is, is not one individual is going to make that decision. Metamorphoses, Book 14. The Island of Circe, the story of Picus and Canaan's, the boar motif shows up once again, the apotheosis of Aeneas and Romulus, and the legendary, the legendary founding of Rome. All right, here's the one where we could burn many cycles to make a bad pun. This is where all of a sudden this other guy, Aeneas, who you've been aware of, is going to show up. Now, from my point of view, this is what's gone on. There was a cycle of time that's been attributed to the Greeks, which there's so many problems. Greece didn't even exist back then. I mean, you might call them Helens, maybe, or Aegeans. I think they're actually called Aegeans quite frequently. I don't know, but there's no Greece. So you can even see how the way we talk about it has been swished around to fit some idea that doesn't exist. But Aeneas is going to be the main hero in the Aeneid 
which we covered earlier, which has directly to do with Ennius is a Trojan. Tro Troy just fell, got its butt kicked, and all the dudes that could flee. And Zeus says, hey, man, go found Rome. And by the way, it's going to take over the entire world. And by the way, it's going to last forever. Those are some pretty bold words for a tale that was written Lord knows how long ago. Wayne, jump in and offer up what you are, because I know you've got the boar motif in here, um, and then I'll finish off. Uh, right. Uh, the boar motif. Once again, this shows up, uh, and uh, we're talking about, uh, as we'll see when we get to the next book, this is kind of a, a symbol representing a plague. Okay, and and we'll see that because the boar shows up in multiple stories here in book 14, one of them being the story of uh, Picus and Canaan's. What happens during this story is King Picus, who is the rungular of Latium, uh, which would be modern day Rome or Italy, per se, or, or Rome. This is what's commonly accepted. King Picus was the young ruler of Latium. And his heart belonged to his wife, Canaan's. Circe saw the king hunting one day and desired his love. She created the illusion of a boar running into the thick woods, and he followed the mirage. Then she made the sky dark and presented herself to him. He turned her down because he loved Canaan's. And Circe turned him into a woodpecker. His wife searched everywhere for him, but finally exhausted, she sat down and wept until she disappeared. So uh, you could see how the boar is used to uh, distract the, the husband in this story and send him off on a quest uh, to find this boar. And that's not really what was going on here. But uh, there's another place in here. This is the island of Circe, okay? Macarius told how he had been one of the men Circe transformed to a swine with a magic drink while they were on her island. He was only changed back to human form because Ulysses, or Odysseus, married Circe and asked for his men's recovery as his wedding gift. So you can see the, the boar or the wild pig is used quite frequently here. Um, it's used as a representation of plague in other places within the Book of Metamorphoses. And here, you, you can see the motif being tied into other ideas here, like uh, as far as uh, being equated to Circe directly in these two stories. So uh, when you look at this, you could kind of see how the boar or the wild pig is a, a commonly tied to motif for a lot of different things. So it's just something to pay attention to because it's usually symbolic of something else. And, and that's the thing. And I think in a lot of the cases that we're looking at now, it's equated more to, uh, say, a plague than anything else. So uh, we'll, we'll see. And this will tie forward. People will understand better once we get to book 15. Let me help you out with that and prove it beyond doubt that it's so important that it's reused. What's one of the most recent big honking shows that took over the world mind? That'd have to be Game of Thrones, wouldn't it? Was the queen's name there? Cersei? How did she get it from her husband? He's killed by a boar. And by the way, if you want to go all the way, um, in the end, uh, who ends up you know, in charge? It's the people under the wolf banner. That's Rome. That's the Romulus and Remus story. And there's so much here um, that I don't think we could possibly cover it. But one of the ideas that symbolized the founding of Rome, which is clearly not true, but yet it's there for a reason, is Romulus and Remus get brought up by a wolf. There's your idea. And there's other actually more realistic versions of that. But 
in the beginning of what Wayne was saying, I think we should point out versions of the Ennead. Uh, when Ennius gets over where Rome's going to be, the king that is literally there in the place where the city of Rome is going to start to be built, his name is Latinus. And that's the story I've told about Saturn. Ennius becomes aware that he needs allies, and he's told about this dude named Saturnus, uh, who ruled over a place called Arcadia, of course. And Arcadia was like the Garden of Eden, just paradise. But Saturnus gave everybody civilization and is described as the first fall of man in these stories. But there's, there's so much here, I think we're just going to have to keep moving. Metamorphoses, Book 15. Numa takes the throne after Romulus dies. This story discusses how Hercules manipulates black and white pebbles to determine the fate of someone. The doctrines of Pythagoras, these ideas are foundational today. The death of Numa, Rome is struck with a plague. The people appeal to Apollo for help. Apollo redirects them to Asclepius. The god takes on the form of a single giant snake, and Rome recovers. This is, in our estimation, the time when the Asclepius archetype was replaced by the Mercury archetype. The transformation of medicine is traceable right to this spot. All roads do lead to Rome. The apotheosis of Julius Caesar, an allegory for the primacy of the Roman Empire. Uh, God, I mean, we could, on, on some of these books, guys, we, we could do a whole show, but let's just try to keep it down to a reasonable idea. First of all, Hercules is here. Everyone's heard of Hercules. Why has everyone heard of Hercules till today? You know why? Because these ideas matter to somebody, because they have something to say, because they're holding information that is not going to get lost. Uh, Pythagoras. Uh, this is Pythagoras is one of the main personages held up in every secret society in this world. What is it, Jason? Pythagoras's 47th problem? What's the problem? 47th. Yes, that sounds right. But I don't know. I, th I feel like I'm getting it wrong, but people can look it yeah, up. Yeah, that's actually Euclid you're thinking of, the 47th problem of Euclid. So, sorry. <laughs> so so it is Euclid. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm complagging. But Pythagoras is right in there, too, because of his mathematical works on other ideas. And, you know, you'll see it use the triangles and all these things. It goes all the way back to here, um, these personages. And, of course, here's Asclepius. Now, Asclepius actually has a story attributing him to Apollo and his mother, Coronis, of all things, um, and a, truly a healer, really actually involved in medicine. And I'm with Wayne all day. Uh, ain't what we got. Uh, if you got Asclepius, the little symbol you'd see in all your medicine would be a more wooden-looking staff with a single serpent. What we have is the caduceus, this winged thing with double serpents making double eights, the shape of a double eight. And as we've pointed out so often, mercury has not a damn thing to do with medicine. It has to do with money, with tricksters, with the crossroads, with, I mean, we could go on and on. Go ahead, Wayne. Yeah, it's important that we understand that archetype, whereas Asclepius was the single serpent Mercury is the double serpent, and that's what's kind of been replaced here uh, with the rise of the Roman Empire or the apotheosis of Julius Caesar being an allegory for that. So this, all this stuff kind of ties hand in hand. This is like the replacing of classical natural sciences or alchemical ideas with what we consider our modern science or, or our modern medical ideas. So this is where you could see, you could tie it right back to there, that... Uh, at Rome, 
at the crossroads at Rome is where medicine took the turn. And, uh, you know, once again, all, all roads lead to Rome, and that's where we're at. Further, if you look at the ideas of Pythagoras, I'm going to read a little line right from Ovid's Metamorphosis here. It says, and this is attributed to Pythagoras, quote, There is no death, no death, but only change and innovation. When men call what men call birth is but a different new beginning, death is but to cease to be the same. End quote. And that's from right out of Book 15, The Doctrines of Pythagoras, line 72 through 75. So that's an important idea that's uh, kind of placed right on the table here. And this talks completely about metamorphosis or transformation being a fundamental thing, that there is no true death. Um, it's, it's all about uh, the rebirth. And that's uh, actually what the number 13 also encodes rather than just the four for death. It indicates rebirth. It's the phoenix. Uh, and it even says so right here in the doctrines of Pythagoras, death, even sometimes creative life, as with the phoenix that rises from the ashes of its father. So it's it's new life. It's it's death equals new life. And that's an idea uh, from Pythagorean thought that's carried forward to today to the, the initiates of the mysteries. They understand that death is just a transitional phase, that everything will be uh, rebirthed. And that's that's part of what's going on in my estimation, is you're looking at the fall of Troy right now. But from this Troy, they plan on building something new, something greater. Uh, this is the phoenix rising from the ashes idea. So, I mean, we're looking at a lot of really heavy thoughts here. But this, I think, is is part and parcel of what's going on. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. Um, exactly what you read fits the bill here. Troy dies, Rome, Rome is born. But in a weird way, you could almost, you know, we, we've outlined the history repeats itself idea. So we can't put that far from our minds. But in many ways, the rise of Rome, uh, which they mightily write these books, and I think these things are just propaganda. And I'm sorry, I know people are going to get pissed off. It's what they are. It's the founding of Rome trying to tie itself to the heroic time of Greece. And if you want to go back before that, it's the lords and the princes uh, being heroes. Um, and in some cases, I think people are even openly admitting some of these things were written by more than one hand. Even Homer, people will make that argument. But here's the thing. The rise of Rome is basically might over right. Now, if we want to go back to myth, the whole idea of King Arthur is that might does not make right. So he creates laws so that all people, even if they're not the mightiest, we're going to have a fair shake. Rome represents the exact opposite. And here's the proof in the pudding. Part of this is going to play into history repeating itself, but Rome doesn't even really make its own art. They go back to the way older Greek things and they replicate them. It's what they do because the ideas that are in that art, the three fates, all these things are so great. They're doing it all the way up to Michelangelo's time, by the way, um, just replicating these ideas that came along in Greece. Think about even the early architecture in a place like our second city, Chicago, which I pray mightily is okay over our Easter, getting back to the point. They would build these new banks, and it would be like this other kind of arc. They'd put a Greek portico on it to tie it back to those great old ideas. My main point here is that you're even told in the histories that Rome, the victor, wrote that, yeah, we enslaved all these Greeks, um, but they're the people who teach our children because the things they did are the greatest. So basically, if you boil it down to that one potato, it's might over right. 
And that's exactly what we are looking at at this moment. Right's not coming into it. It's whoever has the most cunning and the most power, uh, just to be clear. Epilogue. Ovid states plainly that his words will live on forever, and in so doing, claims a sort of apotheosis of his own. Immortality. Here's the dang tell, man. It's a pretty bold statement there, Ovid, a dude who probably never existed, whose name basically means to make fun of the general public. Um, that is a bold statement. And by the way, by your own words, Augustus, the man who you were basically brown nosing, uh, sent you off to the Black Sea um, because you did something that made the emperor mad. So how did all your tales survive? But my point is, as you can see what's going on here. Um, these are put in place to serve a purpose. And then they're held up for a long time. And those people who got the classic education, if you go back into the 1800s, these people, it was so important that they had to know Greek so they could read them in the language they perceived they were written in. And what would you add, Wayne? Uh, I don't think there's much to add to that. I mean, you, you nailed it. You really nailed it. That's <laughs> that's what it is we're looking at. It's a, It's propaganda written at such a high level that it becomes that, you know, you got to wonder if at the time when way higher minds were around speaking, Lord knows how many languages, knowing Lord knows what human abilities, which is where we should be moving to now, in my view, if we weren't so trampled on from every direction. And it's probably why we're where we are right now. Would this have been viewed back in the day as just propaganda by people in the know? And wouldn't they have said, well, yeah, Ovid wrote this thing, but all he did was rewrote 250 myths that already exist. So wouldn't we go back to those 250 original myths? I'm just asking. We can see many different dynamic themes repeated through Ovid's work. Metamorphoses, from our point of view, would appear to be the table of contents for the elite playbook. I don't think we need to add a thing to that. We've both already kind of put that idea out into the world. If you can look at metamorphoses and understand the work, or the great work, of Ovid, then you can see Ovid for what it is, a template for social control. You know, we'd come to a point in modern existence where everyone was pretty sure there wasn't a need for kings and queens anymore, and those old silly people that lived in feudal times, well, there's more proof that history repeats itself verbatim. Uh, guess what? Still got king, queen idea going on that never changed. Guess what? Looks like we're all kind of headed towards some kind of bizarre feudalism that I can't even invent a word for yet because I don't know what to call it. National fascist socialism. I don't know what to call it. Does anyone know what to call it? Probably not because most people aren't even going to be able to consider what I just said has happened for months to come because they're going to be too busy dealing with all of the nonsense that's thrown up in their faces. But Wayne, do you want to add anything to this before we jump over and get back on the end of the other timeline? Uh, no, there's not much to add to that, except uh, for the fact that you could see that uh, this is exactly what this is. I mean, it, it's laid out for us if we have eyes to see it. And it just astounds me to have been so ignorant of all this stuff for so long and to actually be able to see it now, plain as day, and have a better understanding of what's going on in the world around us. It just it just boggles the mind. And I hope more people wake up to this and realize that now is the time for us 
to actually be able to uh, do something to change the cycle we're in and make it a better better cycle for us rather than those who uh, would seek to grab as much control and power as possible uh, of the rest of the world. There it is. If underhanded, dark power places didn't hide the fact that cycles exist, didn't hide the fact that the sky clock is what it is and has always done what it does, if they didn't defame so many of the things that matter, if they weren't about to put out a Nova to tell you all it's good to be fat, like the barn wall and animal farm, uh, people would have a much better idea uh, of how to deal with it. But at the end of the day, um, there's never been a time when the betters weren't better in their own minds. But the problem with that is simple. Really, really simple. Does being honest matter? Does being what we refer to as godly matter? Well, if it does matter, then what the hell are these power places on about? You see, there's the conundrum of our time. This is basically might over right. And it's at a level that I don't think we have a historical record to compare to. You know, even if you go back to some big event like Troy, Troy's one city. You see. All right, man, that brings the first hour of 210.5 to a close. Um, We've actually got so much here, this will run in two parts. Um, These are important things, and we are going to run the second part over at crow777radio.com. There's only one crow site. It's crrow777radio.com. There are fraud sites out doing, I get complaints every day from people being defrauded. I've got complaints into PayPal. I think PayPal's teeing up to do a number. But until then, crow777radio.com is the only place. Jason and I do a live stream Sunday nights at 6 p.m. EST or New York City time every Sunday. Wayne and Jane <laughs> Wayne, <laughs> that's a good one. Wayne and Jason do a live stream Wednesday nights, which happens at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which I show up on occasionally. They have guests a lot. But anyhow, join us for the closeout of Metamorphosis. We maintain that this is just another version of the mythical playbook that is shaping our future based on the cycles of time that have been encapsulated in what we call myth. So join us over at crow777radio.com for hour two, maybe hour two plus, not sure. There it is, man. Cheers.